This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome, listeners. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Program, and you are listening to 3CR. Uh, I would like to welcome everyone back to a country that is very different from the one we left before the break a few months ago. My holidays were a sobering experience. I now have an exact date when I experienced climate change directly for the first time, 21st of December. I was driving back to Sydney with my partner and our dog. There was a wispy haze in the air, but the wind changed, and outside Goulburn on the Hume Highway, we, we hit smoke from the bushfires as dense as any cloud front. The sky turned a glowing ochre. The oil light on my dash turned on, and I felt the flutter of panic that I, that I repressed, and I pushed it down. We pulled into a service station to a landscape that was apocalyptic. Today, the images are familiar to anyone who follows the news, but to experience them firsthand was intense, and it was unnerving. Glowing sky, very short range of vision. It felt dry and there was a weight on my chest, but it somehow feel, felt as if the scene was underwater, the way the haze drifted across my field of view. We filled up with petrol and bought water and continued on. The Hume Highway was closed and beside the road was a line of semi-trailers parked, just just stopped by, by the side. They were too big to go on the small windy road to the coast. We were lucky enough to be able to take it. On that road, I saw many animals, clearly startled and escaping from the inferno. Hotels were full. We stopped at one, and a lady was said she was fleeing the fire. It was clear that this is now an unstable world that we have arrived in in 2020. I've been reading many exasperated accounts of the bushfires, 30-plus human lives, a billion animals, thousands of houses... Many people feel helpless even after the closing months of 2019 when it really felt like the world was beginning to listen. In our show today, I want to empower even the most cynical of people to help trigger action on climate change, not with your feet or your voices or even your vote, but with the thing that makes the world go round, your money. I I sat down with principal financial analyst and ethical investment specialist and founder of Goldleaf Financial Services, Mary Campbell. She will take us through exactly what you need to do an audit on your investments, no matter how small they are, and to ensure that you are not funding forces preventing climate change. We are also lucky enough to have shareholder activist Dan Goucher and the Australia Institute's Tom Swan to take us through an overview of work being done across the financial sector to shift the balance away from fossil fuels. So let's see if we can get them on the line now. Hello, Dan and Tom. Are you there? Yeah. Hello, Kurt. Hey, hey. So I'll I'll just introduce you first. So Dan Goucher is – have I I pronounced that right? It's uh, Goucher. Goucher. Good. Dan Gosher, the Director of Climate and Environmental uh, Studies at the Australian Centre for Corporate Responsibility. A few years ago, I heard about the ACCR at a talk given by Executive Director Bryn O'Brien before the hallowed Bill McKibben spoke. 
the ACCR's mission has resonated with me and those I've spoke to ever since because shareholder activism was a chance to confront decisions made in the interest of shareholders by those in the general public concerned about climate change. Gone were the soundproof walls that insulated the boardroom from action on the street, the separation of shareholders and the climate. I've been looking forward to a chance to discuss shareholder activism with the uh, with with uh, with Dan ever since. So Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kurt. Great. And uh, we also have Tom Swan. Tom is a research assistant at the Australian Institute on a project looking at opportunities and obstacles for fossil fuel divestment in Australia. He is also a spokesperson for the fossil free ANU campaign and a student in the Master of Climate Change. In the Masters of Climate Change. Last year, Tom published the report High Carbon from the Land Down Under, where he confronted the political talking point that Australia is a tiny carbon emitter. We're not. Our exports mean we're the third largest emitter of carbon in the world. We will be talking to Tom about divestment of superannuation from fossil fuels. Tom, welcome to the show as well. G'day. Hey. Um, so I'd just like to start with uh, with Dan, um, but feel free, Tom, to, to just uh, come in. If, you, if you've got anything to say, I want to turn this into a, a, a bit of a discussion. Um, so, Dan, can you just start by explaining how shareholder activism works? Uh, that's, a very, that's a very good question. We could be well. Um, look, there's, there's numerous forms of a shareholder activism, but the one that ACCR practices um, is... Um, is about engaging with um, big listed companies, so um, you know your big four banks, BHP, um, Santos, Woodside, etc. Um, and in some cases, filing sh- what we call shareholder resolutions, which is essentially putting an issue to a vote at, a, at, an, at the annual general meeting. Um, so every company, every listed company, has an annual meeting, um, and um, by putting it to a vote, we can essentially then. Um, essentially take a poll of where um, where a company's shareholders and its large institutional investors sit on a particular issue. Um, so, uh, you know, we... Um, obviously, I work on climate and environment, but I've got colleagues that work on, on workers' rights mm-hmm. and human rights. So uh, we raise issues with listed companies about, um, you know, about their emissions targets, about um, their relationships with groups that lobby against climate policy, um, about how workers are treated, about how... Um, about how refugees are treated. So, mm-hmm. um, and we, by putting it to a poll, you're essentially asking its entire shareholder base, um, which, you know, in some cases is hundreds of thousands of, of individual investors, um, how they, whether, whether or not they think the company is, is addressing that issue adequately. Mm. Um, so that's our form of, of shareholder activism. But, you know, there are big kind of institutional investors that are, um, that would see, you know, that have a different form of shareholder activism, which might be, you know, taking large positions in companies and trying to, you know, seek change on the board. But, you know, that's, um, that's beyond our, uh, yep. beyond the size of our wallets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So last year we had Michael West on the show, who's an investigative journalism, uh, about his um, documentary Dirty Power, uh, and he painted a picture of a revolving door between federal politics and the pro-coal lobby groups and coal industry, with coal industry interests and political interests walking uh, arm in arm. How has this been a challenge to reduction in fossil fuel investment? Oh, this is uh, this is Tom and I's favourite subject. <laughs> <laughs> if only you knew what we talked about in our group chat. Um, look. Uh, 
um, yeah, the way we approach uh, lobbying by listed companies is by looking at the groups that they fund. Um, so if you think of the big uh, uh, industry associations like the Minerals Council of Australia, the, um, the Petroleum Lobby, otherwise known as APIA, um, the Business Council of Australia and so on, um, these groups are funded by large companies and yeah. um, those companies have shareholders. So we essentially speak to those shareholders and say, are you comfortable funding this kind of advocacy? Um, and what we've, I guess, over, over a couple of years of doing this kind of work is that there's a growing number of institutional investors who are not happy that this kind of, that they are funding um, advocacy that stands in the way of, of ambitious climate policy. Mm. Um, and I guess the most clear-cut example of that is probably the Minerals Council of Australia, um, who have stood in the way of, of effective action on climate for the better part of 20 years. Um, and a couple of years ago, before I joined ACSCR, my colleague, Bruno Bryan, who you mentioned earlier, she um, filed, a, filed a motion at BHP um, in 20... Uh, what, what year is it? It's 20-25% that um, it, it starts to sort of feed back in on itself and, and you're more likely to, to win a majority. Has that has that ever happened before, in not just we've, in Australia? We've, no, so. we've, we've, yeah, it's, it's definitely happened um, in the United States. So mm. in the US, they've got a, um, get a much longer history of, of shareholder activism and it's a... It's and, the, and the process. UK as well. And the UK, yeah. It's a far easier process in the US. So, you know, you might 
um, you might see three or four hundred uh, resolutions on kind of social and environmental issues every year in the US. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think last year they might have had a handful that passed, you know, for getting 50, 60, 70% of the vote, um, which is, you know, if, you, if, if you're the management of the company, you must be wondering why you just didn't say, well, we're going to do the thing that they're asking us to do in the first yeah. place. Um, so there is that culture of, um, you know, shareholders filing proposals, um, but in Australia we're still only seeing really ACCR and market forces are the two groups that are filing most of the resolutions, and it's, you kind of took 10 or 15 resolutions right. a year. Is and, and so what are the what are the blockers in Australia that are that are unique unique to Australia that is sort of um, stopping what's happening in the US and the UK from happening here? Do you want to have the first stab at that, Tom? Yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, in terms of blockage for the uptake of shareholder resolutions, there's some specifics around um, the law that need that is the desperate need for law reform. Um, but that's the that's the more boring question. Um, the the more substantive and interesting part of the equation is the enormous political power that these uh, lobby groups have, in particular, and the in the industries that back them. And um, maybe a, maybe a neat sort of vignette to show that is going back. You introduced me as a spokesperson for the the divestment campaign at the ANU. That's a position I've left uh, some time ago now. Oh. But um, that whole episode really showed. Um, I think the the uh, the influence of the industry uh, uh, over government and how sensitive uh, the industry is and and through uh, through that government is to these sorts of changes yeah. and I think that 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 flows through into uh, uh, into how they how they've dealt with um, uh, the 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 rising tide of shareholder ad- advocacy as well. We've seen some quite um, strong commentary against <laughs> against Dan in particular, <laughs> but against the ACCR um, in the financial press and in the in other more conservative newspapers. Um, when which is really quite bizarre when you think about it, because this is um, shareholders yeah. uh, expressing their decisions to you know freedom of speech and, and free markets it should be uh, good conservative principles. Um, but apparently it's a threat to the economy and, and a threat to our way of life. Yeah. Um, and I think I think this really just goes to show more than anything um, the sense in which um, sort of carbon vested interests feel uh, threatened by some of these uh, strategies. And I'll, um, if I can jump in there. Yeah, the, please. The, one of the other things that we see is that um, particularly large Australian investors, they, um, they, they have fairly good access to, to the boards of... Um, of ASX listed companies, yeah. um, and sometimes they confuse that access with, um, I guess, influence. Um, so, if, if an investor is, or if a company is prepared to meet investors and prepared to talk and um, you know and discuss what the issues are, then uh, for that reason, they um, investors may not will, will prefer not to vote against management. They don't want to necessarily upset them and lose that access. Yeah, um, and that is problematic. Um, and I guess that kind of talks to a bit of a, I wouldn't say a boys club, it wasn't just boys these days, but um, a bit of a club between companies and investors that they are, um, you know, they're inherently kind of part of the same system. You know, you've got investors that are profiting from being invested in these companies. Um, so it, it is difficult for them to press them to, you know, if you're, you know, if they're an oil and gas company or a coal company to, to transition into being something else. Um, because it's, it's a very difficult thing for them to do. Yeah. And, 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 and more than that, there's, there's also been um, 
for too long, no one asking them to do it. And it's it's a, unfortunately a relatively new um, source of pressure. I mean, the divestment movement in Australia has been going for less than a decade um, and has achieved great things in that time. Um, but uh, certainly shareholder engagement or shareholder advocacy of the kind that Dan is talking about um, is, is newer here than it is elsewhere. And it's something that, that the financial system is less familiar with. Um, combined with the the perceptions, uh, misperceptions um, of the role of fossil fuels in our economy, um, and um, as well as the political power, and you get this um, sort of trenchant resistance to to doing anything substantive, unfortunately. Um, but that, as you say, that is shifting, and um, we see that in the the rising votes for shareholder resolutions and controversies when large funds refuse, you know, they talk the talk but refuse to walk the walk um, by voting the right way and um, and increasingly with members, you know, demanding more of their funds and, and threatening and indeed shifting money when their funds don't um, invest or engage in the way that they expect. It's And I know it's really still very early days, but do you think that uh, a real-life catastrophe like the bushfires will sort of force the issue through? So we've done some research recently um, looking at the impacts of these bushfires on uh, on on Australians in terms of like health impacts. So we estimate around five million Australian adults um, had direct health impacts, and mm. there was almost two million days, uh, two million people who missed work as a result. Yeah. Um, and these sorts of these sorts of impacts were linked directly with um, increasing concern about climate change and increasing demands for for more action. Um, when people have a direct personal in, uh, impact like you described, it can be quite distressing and it can stay with you for a long time and turn up in, in unexpected ways in the future. Um, so, yes, I absolutely think there'll be a long-term, very profound consequence. It's still too early to say what that will be mm. and it could play out in all sorts of complex ways. Um, and I think it's 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 a certainly a, a really important opportunity to channel that concern um, and people crying out for for ways to take action to channel it into into actions that actually are uh, can have a real impact on on decision making that happens in financial Australia and ultimately in in Parliament House. Right, right. Um, I, I, I yeah. can't jump in there, Kurt. I Please. think, um, like, I mean, we've obviously uh, been. You know, I guess my colleagues and I have been having this conversation for the last couple of weeks since we returned from, from our break, and like you, I was I was personally impacted, and I know Tom was as well. Mm. Um, and I guess we start to think, well, you know, does, how, how does it affect like the electorate, which is one thing, but then we also start to think about how does it affect the people who work at, um, you know, large companies? How does it affect people who work with large investors? Um, you know, and it does it change their mindset about um, how they go about their work? You know, how do, does it make them feel like they need to act more urgently yeah. um, or take actions that they that wouldn't be seen as business as usual. Yeah. Um, you know, we, I guess, Tom and I have like we're working for, for groups that, um, you know, will, will allow us to, you know, amplify and, and I guess, um, accelerate our work where we, where we need to. And we're certainly thinking about how we do that over the next couple of months. Um, but a lot of people who work in, you know, kind of big corporate environments, they're, you know, they're quite, I guess, restricted about, you know mm. how how different they can behave. Yeah, you know, in, in response to this crisis, I think that's yeah. And I think when I said it's uh, unclear what these profound impacts might be, it can go unfortunately in both ways. And um, we're already seeing um, some quite cynical attempts to capitalise on the crisis to develop um, forested areas. Yeah. Um, to you know, we've seen the gas deal. 
um, with uh, the federal and the New South Wales government, you know, um, state is literally on fire and they've just done a deal for cash for more fuel on the fire. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's, you know, it could, can potentially go in, in a whole bunch of different ways at the same time. But I'd really agree with what Dan was saying. And I think we see um, internal concern within companies um, being a, I certainly see that as a, a, a something that divestment itself as a strategy has played into. Um, the Minerals Council themselves uh, complain about not being able to recruit enough uh, people as engineers um, and not, mm. not having enough uh, people studying at university. Um, and gas companies say that it's a major emerging risk. Um, we've seen uh, major engineering companies um, have an internal crisis because they were doing work for Adani. Um, and and this is all this is all because you know people who work at these companies or might or might consider working for these companies don't want to be working. Mm for industries that are actively causing great harm, irreversible harm. And that's that has potentially profound consequences for the way that these businesses operate in the future, increases the cost of um, skilled labour, potentially decreases the quality of the recruits they can get. Um, and, and we know this because they're saying it. They're saying it publicly. Um, and that's, that's and one of the... Yeah, and they're, and they're also pushing government to, uh, you know, to contribute to more, um, you know, to uh, tertiary education programs and so on to ensure that there are enough people to work in these industries. So they're actually pushing for policy change just to, to kind of fill that gap, if you know what I mean, because so many young graduates are getting turned away from working in, um, in certainly particular companies. Mm. Which, which is, which, I mean, if I can just um, loop back to something that Dan was saying before, this is a problem that has been created by... Uh, by the outrageous lobbying by um, by the Minerals Council and and others, uh, which has really identified the mining industry in Australia in the, in the minds of the public, the mining industry with fossil fuels. The Australian mining industry is actually quite diverse, and um, we're going to need a lot of the minerals that we do have in Australia uh, to tackle climate change. And particularly the, the, the sort of classic example of lithium, which is a key component in batteries. Um, but if you look at, we did some research a few years ago, you look at what the Minerals Council themselves actually talk about, it's almost exclusively coal. Um, they talk about renewable energy more than any of the other uh, things that their members dig up and sell. Um, so it's pretty clear that it's been a, um, an almost an obsession on behalf of the, the mining lobby, and this is something that investors have let uh, the companies they own do with their own money, um, and it's clearly not in the interests of the rest of them the mining industry that's now suffering as a result of um, this this loss of social license. Right, right. Um, I'd like to move to super now. Um, so just uh, this this one's for you, Tom. Mm-hmm. Um, today, Australian super funds add up to a total of $2.9 trillion, making them the, that our country the fourth largest uh, in the world. Um, that sort of money has huge clout, obviously, anywhere. Uh, but on my last count, you could buy... 209 Gina Reinhardt's for that. Um, how, how does Australian super funds compare worldwide with fossil fuel divestment? Um, so there have certainly been some uh, victories and some progress in Australia in terms of super funds uh, responding to their members and either creating an option that their members can go into that is fossil fuel free yep. um, or, or taking a bigger step across their whole portfolio. Uh, I'd have to say the Australian financial system generally is behind um, particularly uh, Europe um, and some parts of uh, the US, uh, but there have been there has been progress. And the, the main thing for listeners to consider is where their own money is and 
um, what you know what they do and don't know about what uh, their super fund is doing with their money. Uh, and it's actually quite simple. Uh, you might have to think a bit about where you want to put put your money, but it's quite simple to change. It really takes five minutes, um, filling out one form and, and pressing a button. Mm. Um, and it's it's those sorts of decisions that ultimately um, send the message to the people who manage the super funds that they need to uh, they need to change the way they're managing the money. The the actual mechanics of um, super funds uh, are obviously a, a little bit different from shareholder activism, which is is much more direct. But with super funds, you're dealing with a, a bigger clump. You mean of, divesting? Divesting, yeah, mm. yeah. With shareholder, like yeah, divesting uh, mm. super is a big clump of money. So success is sort of more coarse grained. You're either in or you're out. How does uh, like di- divestment actually work? Oh, so divestment is simply the opposite of investment. All it means is um, it's, it's selling your selling your investments in something and choosing to put your money elsewhere. Um, selling, divesting your super. Um, so you know, if someone wants to divest the, the fossil fuel industry and and go go fossil free, that's simply a matter of finding a fund, making finding out where your money currently is and whether you're in fossil fuel companies in your super. Uh, and then making the decision to, to change. And it's important that when you do this for maximum impact that you let your fund know why mm-hmm. you're shifting. Um, and to have the maximum impact, you should make a complaint, and you should even use the word complaint in your in your email because it triggers a special process that they have to have by law, um, and it will mean that they'll have to deal with, deal with your uh, concerns in a more substantive way. Yeah. Um, Generally, they have pro. This has now happened so much. They have pro forma responses, so you don't think you'll be getting any special treatment. Um, but it's important that they that they register why they're losing your business, um, and and then and then you just basically um, sign a form and, and and it shifts over. It's been made quite simple now to do. Um, but uh, you know, Australians spend more on fees for super every year than they do on electricity, and most people have almost no engagement with it. Um, and it's a real shame. And I think if the super industry spent more time talking about what they were doing with our money, then there would be more engagement, um, more, more engagement with it. I guess for some funds who make very large fees based on their consumers' uh, disinterest, that's probably not what they want. <laughs> they don't want you thinking about it too much. Um, so you can you can for a lot of people you can actually save money by shifting funds. Yeah. So I, I guess one of the main barriers to doing that is that there's so many super funds just don't tell their members where their money is being invested. Absolutely. So I had a look into this because there have been proposals um, over most of the decade now to require super funds to um, to disclose where they invest, and I, I just saw that um, it was pushed back again. at now due for the end of the year, but if um, so it'll be in place by it, it sort of starts at the end of this year and then full disclosure will be required next year. But if previous experience is any guide, it'll be pushed back again. Mm. Um, some funds do disclose more, and generally it's the funds where they uh, what they're investing in is part of their kind of marketing to try and, try and recruit people. And so that generally includes the more ethical or sort of climate-conscious funds. They tend to disclose more um, of, of where they are putting, putting their um, customers' money or their members' money. If, they, if, they're not, if a fund is not willing to tell its members where, where, it's, um, where their money is, that's a concern in its own right. It's also suggesting that there's some stuff in there that maybe their members wouldn't like. Yeah. Um, so has there, has there been any blowback from 
uh, super di- uh, divestment from fossil fuels in the super industry from the coal industry? Has, has coal has coal money ever attempt to to influence how super funds invest? Yeah, they have been. Um, they've been quite vocal, um, public, and understand private um, attempts to to dissuade funds from doing uh, pursuing divestment. Um, certainly publicly it's been, um, I know this from my time as a, as a university activist with um, the ANU, um, and that, that at the time was, we're talking about $16 million, um, which is a t- really relatively small share of their, um, of their fund, which itself was small by comparison with most super funds. And none of the companies were actually coal companies. Uh, and yet... Uh, the the head of coal at the Minerals Council was out there saying this was a radical thing that was going to threaten the basis of our economy, which is not only ludicrous thing to say, but um, clearly demonstrates that the coal industry saw divestment as a, as a threat to themselves. And we've seen this reflected in market disclosures from large coal companies as well. Um, they list divestment as a, as a significant threat to their ability to raise capital going forward. Um, so, yeah, it's... It, 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 it's certainly something that the coal industry spent a lot of time uh, fighting very noisily against, which really has served to emphasise the fact that they're worried about it. Yeah, and that it but is there, effective. There, yeah, there are a couple of barriers that I mean we see when we've spoken to funds in the past about investment, um, which we don't do a lot of the time um, because the, I mean the immediate response is that the you know, the large investors prefer to remain invested and engage with companies, which is which is why we kind of push shareholder resolutions in the first place because then if you're going to remain invested and engage um, in inverted commas with the company, then, um, you know, we should give you something to do. Um, um, but the other reason, I guess, is there's also a cost issue, um, which um, so a lot, a lot of the big super funds will have um, money invested uh, through an active manager, so a manager who will decide, you know, which, which companies to buy and sell, and then they'll have a chunk of money invested in what's called passive um, and passive is essentially they give uh, a company like BlackRock or State Street a, mm. a, a bunch of money to go and basically replicate the index. Um, so it's essentially just an algorithm that right. replicates whatever the index does each day. Um, so because it's just computer-generated, it's very low cost. Um, so, you know, it, it, I guess it's I would say it's relatively easy, but it's easier to the best from your kind of active managers mm. because you can just say, well, you can't invest in this group of companies, but to get a passive manager to divest, like, um, you know, we saw BlackRock uh, announce a couple of weeks ago, so this is the world's biggest asset manager managing something like seven trillion US dollars, um, announced that it would divest from coal or thermal coal companies, but only in its active fund, which is, you know, probably less than 5% of its overall assets under management. Um, it, it can't do anything about the passive um, business. Not, not that it can't. It's, you get into a debate about this, Tom. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. I agree with every, yeah. everything you yeah. said. But the, the good yeah. news is that there are um, increasing numbers of indexes that you can use now to track fossil-free portfolios. Um, the question is whether the funds are willing to treat that as the benchmark or not. And if if they if if the way that they've designed their fund um, and the you know their investment mandate is linked to an index that has fossil fuels in it, then they're always going to want to have those companies in the in the portfolio, right? And and you also see going back to to super specifically, um, dedicated green super funds cropping up. But I'm I'm 
sort of concerned that some of these appear to be a lot uh, they seem on the surface to, to be a green fund or some sort of uh, sustainability fund, but there's there's a bit of devil in the detail about what they actually invest in, isn't there? They can't, they're not necessarily reliably uh, green if you move all your money into a green fund. I mean, that's that's absolutely true. Um, it's it's good that they're responding to what they see as a consumer demand and you know shifting consumer preferences. But um, yeah, absolutely, there's a whole lot of greenwashing that goes on, mm. and it's really important that if, if climate change and divesting from fossil fuels is important to you, it's important that you make sure that you know what's in the fund and what isn't. Um, and so. Some of these funds, for example, have divested from thermal coal, but they might be in other sort in, in metallurgical coal, and they certainly might be in gas. Um, other funds, you know, might be really important to you to um, to make sure that you're, you're not invested in any part of the fossil fuel industry, uh, and you just need to make sure with the fund. And they should be able to answer that question. And if they if they're not if they don't answer that question, that should be a massive red flag as well. There's a lot of um, information uh, places you can get information out there on on these sorts of questions. Uh, Market Forces has got a pretty comprehensive um, uh, sort of uh, database that they keep up to date. Uh, there's also um, a, a tool used by the Responsible Investment Association of Australia that allows you to check which uh, which products uh, exclude certain uh, certain sectors. Um, yeah, it's just it, it takes a bit of a personal engagement with something that most Australians don't think a whole lot about. But in doing so, you end up learning a bit about um, you know where, how this how this very powerful and very large part of our economy works. There's another one as well. I'll, I'll, I'll jump in there. Um, called the Ethical Advisors Co-op, who who rated. Um, so it, this is a, essentially a, I guess a, a group of um, ethical financial planners who um, <laughs> essentially rated a bunch of um, both super funds and investment funds for you know, um, you know how well they had divested from you know, fossil fuels. But it was a really kind of narrow screen, like, like Tom mentioned before. And they also looked at returns and fees. Mm. So it's, it's a far more broader kind of rating than it is just looking at you know, what is or isn't invested in. Yeah. So I, I just uh, one final question um, before we finish up because we're running out of time. I'd like to talk about it all hour if I could. But um, so I, I'm interested in some sort of generational divide that must exist where you have uh, a lot of. If you're older and you've been working longer, you, you're necessarily going to have more super than someone who's in the same position making the same money, but um, is 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 younger. How does that impact? Um, Fossil fuel divestment, in particular, with so it's a really it's a really great question. I'm sure Dan, I'm going to jump in. Sorry, Dan. I'm sure you've got news as well. <laughs> um, the super industry is is as interested in uh, potential sources of growth as it is um, as it is existing funds, and so it's looking at. It, I mean, um, it should be, and certainly some of it is looking at um, the 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 sort of generation um, coming. You know. The prime of their working careers, and you know, potentially increasing the amount of super that's going into their fund, um, and thinking how can we um, how can we capture that market, and that's why we're starting to see uh, more funds uh, focusing on these sorts of issues, and certainly more marketing. Um, we're seeing this with banks as well, um, uh, but also I wouldn't assume that it's uh, that it's uh, younger people only that are shifting. Um, mm. I've certainly, for one of the ethical funds, I looked at some of the data because um, it was a bigger one. You could look at this data; they have to report it, and it was in a 
in a um, in a in a consultant's report, and it was actually they were growing most uh, in the older generation. Um, so this is one of the major ethical uh, funds, and um, so I think I think you know it, uh, whilst it's true that younger people are generally on average more concerned about climate change, it's also true that there's a lot of engagement with older Australians um, on the issue of divestment specifically. Yeah. So it sort of cuts both ways. Yeah. Great. I, Great. Think, I think that comes down to kind of younger people just being generally disengaged with super, which is a real problem in itself. Yeah. And, you know, for, for most younger people, they don't have large balances. It's it's kind of meaningless to them until such time as there is a decent balance in there. Um, and it probably just seems to be too hard. Right. You know, there is an issue with financial literacy about people actually understanding how super works. And, you know, even if they were... Um, topping up super as much as they possibly could at a younger age is going to make a far bigger difference when mm. they're older. That's um, just one other thing that they, I guess, that, that plays into it is the types of assets that super funds are looking at buying into. Um, you know, it's one thing to be buying shares, which is you know what you'd call a liquid asset, but some of the assets that, particularly the big industry super funds are buying, their infrastructure and property. You know, they're they're buying these these, these um, investments with a you know 30, 40, 50 year time frame. Um, so then you start to think about, well, you know, whose interest is that asset going to be in? Because it's clearly going to be in the interest of the younger members. Yeah. Um, and, you know, do younger members want to be invested in a, a gas terminal that has a 50-year life in, in the United States, for instance? Yeah. And that, yeah. that's a very interesting question because, you know, I suspect most of those younger members wouldn't want to be invested in it. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time, uh, Tom, Tom and Dan, and coming on the show. Cheers, Thanks for having me. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. That was uh, Tom Swan from the Australian Institute and ACCR's Dan Gocher. Um, we'll have a look uh, at how to purge your finances uh, of dirty, dirty money when I speak with ethical investment advisor Mary Campbell. I'm Kurt Johnson. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions program. So I'm with Mary Campbell, who is a principal financial advisor and ethical investment specialist and founder of Goldleaf Financial Services. Mary will be presenting for the Sustainable Living Festival, which is this Thursday, which is in Carlton, giving a talk called Investing in Climate Solutions. It's only 20 bucks, and you can get your tickets through the Sustainable Living Festival website, which we will be covering the following week. Mary, thanks so much for taking the time to talk talk with me today. Such a complicated subject, finances. Yeah, th- thanks for inviting me uh, to have a chat. It is a complex area, uh, so hopefully we can shine a bit of light on some of the things to consider if you're wanting to be more sustainable with your money. I guess we all want to do something um, on climate change. I assume everyone that's listening to this wants to do something positive to, to reverse climate damage that we've done so far. The Gordian knot that we're in is that as things keep getting bleaker and bleaker, we want more and more security to kind of deal with that. Um, so the thing that's going through my head is that I'm worried about doing a lot with the climate, but then losing money if I divest from fossil fuels and not having any financial security and retiring a pauper and someone who's more vulnerable to, to, to uh, negative climate situations. Um, is Is... Someone divesting from fossil fuels, is that going to undermine my bottom line when I retire? Yeah, I think that that's a a really key question and it's one that a lot of people are wondering. Um, I might just take a step back and just note that everything we discussed today is of general nature. So take it all with a grain of salt and see uh, how 
the, the points we cover, how they might fit in your personal circumstances before making any decisions. Um, so in terms of performance, actually the performance is competitive. So I'll just read a quote from the Responsible Investment Association. Um, they did some research and their quote um, as a result of their research is responsible investment funds continue to outperform mainstream funds over most time frames and asset classes with Australian figures contributing to an overwhelming body of evidence showing that responsible and ethical investing leads to better investment outcomes alongside benefiting people and the planet. In terms of his super at retirement, um, that'll be impacted by the fees and the blends of asset classes that he invests in. Um, he also may be able to boost his super balance at retirement by re reviewing his super contributions within the government legislated limits. And again, Money Smart has some great information on how all of this works. Um, and his retirement will also be impacted by interest rates and if he's able to add savings onto his mortgage to repay it faster. Um, so in summary, it's important to look at your overall financial mm -hmm. situation and combine that with, you know, making a difference in the world and addressing climate change. So why wouldn't everyone just invest in positive uh, ethical funds all the time or ethical investments? So look, I think it's a, it's a, it's a new space. Traditionally, I, I guess we've as a society, we've separated money from our values, and we haven't thought of, we haven't really connected the two so much. Um, and in terms of our money, looking at investing or looking at superannuation, it's still relatively new. Um, we don't learn a lot about money at school, um, so even just engaging with our finances and, and making those choices as citizens um, is kind of in some ways a bit of a newer concept. Let's say that there's this imaginary um, guy called Dean. He's 35 years old, he's a teacher, and he's been working for 20 years, like 15 of them after uni as a teacher. He's saved up a bit of money in super, some money in the bank, he has a home loan, uh, he's a big reader, so his dad gave him the Barefoot Investor for Christmas, which is a classic dad present. Uh, he bought some shares, changed his banking to make more money, then one of his colleagues started telling him about climate change and he freaked out. He needed to do something about climate change right then and there. Uh, he went out on the climate strike, but then he heard a compelling community radio program about super. Uh, what can Dean do to make sure his money isn't actively working against his action on the street? Well, I think there's a number of uh, things that he can do, but the first step I would suggest is actually just writing down a list of where his money is. So. Uh, where he banks, uh, where his super is, he might have more than one super account, uh, does he have any insurance, uh, does he have you know, his shareholdings, so actually make a list of every single financial asset that he has or account that he has. Um, the second step, as I said, we don't learn a lot about money at school, so the second step I'd suggest is actually learning about money. Now, the Australian government has a fantastic website that not many people have heard of. It's called Money Smart, so that's moneysmart.gov.au. Um, and then he can start to learn about it because there can be significant financial consequences to making these changes. So I think it's really important to, I, I guess, skill up on what are the key things to look at. So start with one topic at a time. So you could go to the Money Smart website and look at superannuation, for example. Learn about what is super, how does it work, what are the options, um, and also understand what are the features that you might need 
um, in your account and what you should consider before making changes. So considering the fees, the insurance cover, the investment options and any other benefits. So that would be the second step. Once you're kind of armed with that knowledge, the third step is to um, do, do a bit of investigation work on uh, his own assets. So investigate his own super fund, read the product disclosure statement. Um, for example, do they have a policy on climate change? Do they disclose their underlying investments? Do they have ethical investment options? And what are the features and costs of changing to those options? The fourth step would be to investigate other options. So there might be other super funds that have a better position in terms of both climate change and also potentially better financial outcomes in terms of fees and costs. Then he can make a decision. So that general investigation process can cover not only his super, but his home loan, his shares, his banking and insurers. And, you know, of course, I have to say he may benefit from seeing a financial advisor or a mortgage broker who can assist with these investigations and help him make a decision. Right. So just having a look at super in a little bit more detail now. So after 20 years, our mate Dean has 60K. He chose the fund with the lowest fees. After listening to that compelling community radio program, he starts thinking about super and he's got to get his super out of fossil fuels. What is his first step then? Okay, so the first step uh, I would suggest is to actually check if he has any insurance in his fund. Uh, most people don't realise that if you change super funds, in many cases you'll lose that insurance. Now, most people have insurance in their super, um, so it could be life insurance, total permanent disability insurance, and income protection insurance, and this could be very valuable to you and your family should something happen to your health and you are unable to work or became disabled or passed away. Um, you have an option to set up new insurance with a new super fund or in some instances transfer your insurance. However, you should check the terms as this might not be as beneficial as your existing cover in your current fund. Um, in addition, it actually might be difficult to get new affordable insurance cover. So it might be worth holding on to your existing cover. Uh, so it's just really important to check the details of how your insurance cover works with your existing fund prior to making any changes. In terms of moving his super or um, you know, what's his first step to uh, have uh, a super fund that's not contributing to climate change, he might like to access the Market Forces website. They have a tool called Super Switch. So Market Forces are aligned with Friends of the Earth, a non-profit organisation, and they research super funds underlying investments and provide information on their fossil fuel exposure. They look at not only the direct investment in coal mining, for example, but also investments in organisations that provide support to the fossil fuel industry. So this might include services such as banks providing finance, engineering services, insurance companies and more. In terms of his super at retirement, um, that'll be impacted by the fees and the blends of asset classes that he invests in. Um, he also may be able to boost his super balance at retirement by re reviewing his super contributions within the government legislated limits. And again, Money Smart has some great information on how all of this works. Um, and his retirement will also be impacted by interest rates and if he's able to add savings onto his mortgage to repay it faster. Um, so in summary, it's important to look at your overall financial mm -hmm. situation and combine that with, you know, making a difference in the world and addressing climate change. Now, Dean hits up marketforces.org.au and sees that some super funds have some pretty benevolent names, something like Green Super to 
make up an example. Uh, but Green Super is in fact not green at all. Not only are they not letting on what they are investing his money in, but some of it, uh, some of it is going directly to fossil fuels. How can our friend Dan be sure his money is not wrecking the climate? He'd need to look first at whether he can change super funds. So some employers may not actually provide that choice. Um, again, he'll need to come back to understanding how super works and researching what might be right for him. Um, so some of the key things to look at are also how comfortable he is with risk and asset classes. So that, that means things like whether he's invested in Australian and international shares, property and bonds, and the brand, bland, and the blend of those asset classes. Uh, and, and again, understanding the fees and the features of different super funds, as well as their positions on fossil fuels and climate change. As he's concerned about climate change, other issues he might like to consider is whether his super is invested in positive solutions, such as energy efficiency and renewable energy. He also might like to consider whether his super fund has voted in support of company climate resolutions. For example, did they support a shareholder resolution for companies to disclose their carbon emissions? Market Forces also provides information on how super funds have voted previously. Is it ever worth Dean trying to change his super fund from within and petition them to change their wicked ways? Yes. In short, most people are not engaged with their super funds, so this can make a difference as super funds are competing for your business. Dean can write to his super fund, providing his member details, and ask them to divest from fossil fuels. He can also write to his super fund, asking them to vote to support climate change resolutions. The Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility, ACCR, is a good resource to help you with this. Awesome. And we've got uh, Bryn on this show, which we will have just heard. So Dean is also saving up for a bit of a holiday. He wants to visit his nan in China. Uh, he has his money in one of the big four banks and they are investing it in whatever they want. How can he be sure that his money there isn't killing the client? So again, he can investigate his bank, read the corporate social responsibility report and the information on climate change on the bank web bank's website. He can also visit the Market Forces website to learn about banks lending to fossil fuels. Okay, also as part of the Barefoot Investor, Dean bought a bunch of shares. It's pretty obvious that some shares, like, say like Adani, are putting money in directly into fossil fuels, but it's not as simple as that. Especially in the finance world, there are ETFs and index funds where a portion of your money can go directly to fossil fuel companies or indirectly through the bank that invests in fossil fuel companies. In such a complicated world, how can I possibly vet a share for fossil fuels and still operate as a responsive investor? So look, there's a, a range of options he can look at and there's lots of resources out there. Uh, a good um, starting point he, is where he could research individual shares. So read up on the companies, learn if they're involved in fossil fuels and put together his own direct share portfolio. Um, that may take a bit, a bit of time, um, but if you're interested, I think it's a, you know, a great way if you're keen to, to do things yourself. In terms of exchange-traded funds um, or index funds or managed funds, there's lots of options out there, and some of them do screen out fossil fuels and other ethical matters. Um, they, they aren't all the same, so you need to look at the details of each fund. So one research option to as a starting point is 
the Responsible Association of Australasia Responsible Returns website, uh, where you can search RIA accredited products, including super funds, investment funds, um, according to the issues you care about, such as fossil fuels or animal cruelty. From there, you can look into the, so the individual fund, look into their ethical policies and look at the underlying holdings to understand what the fund is invested in. As there are many options these days to find something that's in line with your ethics, um, there are two areas I suggest checking when looking into super or investment funds. One is to look at the wording. So does it, when they say they exclude fossil fuels, when you read the detail, does it say they exclude all fossil fuels or only thermal coal? Does it look at the main activity, for example, mining fossil fuels, or is the screening process extended to distributing fossil fuels like petrol stations? And does it go as far as services such as an IT company primarily working with the fossil fuel industry? So looking at those details, the second area to check is the thresholds. Some companies will say they exclude fossil fuels, but only if it makes up 20% of the total revenue of that particular company that they're investing in. So if the revenue, and with some of these large corporations, it may be the case that the revenue from fossil fuels is under 20%, then that super fund is allowed to invest in that company. Right, and and this isn't kind of come at the cost of people making money as well just to, to, to re-emphasize that in shares there's just because someone wants to go green or has a particular ethical bent that doesn't necessarily come at the cost of making uh, profits or investing in good well-performing shares in, in general that's right so there's no guarantees in terms of financial performance um, but I you know I can refer to uh, you know what's happened in the past where the performance has been very competitive. Um, so it's also, if we're talking about climate change, it's a major risk to the economy. So the Reserve Bank of Australia has mentioned this and said that um, it's absolutely essential that companies uh, look into um, you know, managing climate change risk, uh, as and all the government regulators are actually um, have, have put out statements like this, including ASIC and the Reserve Bank of Australia. Um, going back to performance, um, you know, one quote I think is is useful um, is some research from Harvard University, and their findings were. We find that firms making investments improving their performance on environmental, social and governance issues exhibit better stock market performance and profitability in the future. Um, as I said, there's no guarantees um, and not every investment fund that is is uh, screening out fossil fuels, they're, they're not all the same. They have different managers, different processes. You know, one of the things to, to also note is that uh, you know, the RIA research also shows people are choosing ethical investment options um, increasingly and currently there's over $299 billion in ethical investment options in Australia. And um, you may also be interested to know that the biggest investment company in the world, BlackRock, has um, only a couple of weeks ago announced that they plan to divest from coal and fossil fuels. So. Clearly, some really smart people with a lot of credentials see this as, um, you know, the way of the future and they see that it will make their clients money as well as uh, be beneficial to the environment and, and manage that risk. So I think it's really timely to have this conversation.
Is there a way to sort of flip it on its head and does anyone pick like develop a portfolio just just looking at renewable energy is say we've got Dean and he hears about various renewable projects that he wants to be a part of. Do, would you say that he would be putting too many eggs in one basket if he were just to develop a portfolio purely from renewables? Look, there, there are portfolios out there um, and, and investment funds that do just that. Um, I would caution against putting all of your money in any one sector. Um, and having said that, though, you can invest in things that are having a positive impact that have, you know, a, a kind of a pretty broad base. So energy efficiency, for example, you know, that impacts almost every layer mm-hmm. of the economy. Um, so if you're investing in different companies that are more energy efficient from white goods to um light bulbs um, to to farming equipment, then you're actually exposed to lots of different sectors. So one of the key ideas in terms of making sensible investments is to diversify your risks, so to not have all your eggs in one basket. But you can still do that while making a positive impact. And these days, there are so many different um, products out there to do that from green bonds um, and social impact bonds. So in every asset class, um, from property bonds, um, shares um, and and other assets, there's ways you can make a positive difference. That's awesome. Um, Let's go back to our mate Dean. So Dean also has his home loan. We all know that whoever the home loan is with makes a ton of money off the interest from Dean over the course of the home loan. Is it just the same as banking to figure out whether this interest is funding fossil fuels or not? So look, it it is pretty much the same as banking. Again, checking the Market Forces website, um, starting with looking at the fees and features you need in a home loan um, and then researching the options that are available. Mortgage broker might be able to help you with this and there are mortgage brokers around Australia that specialise in ethical or green lenders. Um, and again, you can also write to your bank and ask them to divest from fossil fuels if this is an issue that concerns you. Do you reckon it'd be a smart move to be uh, to send the bank uh, an email and say, "I'll only bank with you if you divest"? You know, I, I think telling institutions before you move your money that if they don't change, that's mm. what you plan to do, rather than just moving your money um, that has more of an impact and they're more likely to pay attention. Uh, with my conversations in the financial services industry and banking industry generally, they are aware that people are starting to engage on these issues. So mm. every letter counts. So we've gone through Dean Super, his shares, his home loan. Uh, if you make sure all of those are, are, are green and clean, uh, can he sleep with a clear conscience or is there something else that he needs to consider? Um, so, look, as I mentioned, I think engaging with your super bank insurer and investment companies by writing to them and asking them to take action on climate change um, is something that he can do in order to have his voice heard. As a shareholder, he can work with ACCR and market forces to support shareholder resolutions on climate change. He may also write letters to have his voice heard regarding banking and investments with organisations he has contact with, such as his employer, his local council, state and federal governments. It feels like Dean's going to do his bit, at least as a participant in the economy, which is cool. And thank you so much for that, for that, Mary, for going through uh, Dean's finances. Um, and if 
people feel that they can't handle it themselves and need some outside advice, can they contact you? Absolutely. Um, so um, we, we focus on helping people invest um, in line with their personal values as well as helping them manage their finances and reach their goals. Uh, so our, our website is www.goldleaffinancial.com.au. 